Well, good morning, everyone. We had some uh, baptisms the first service, so I just want to celebrate. You'll notice up on the screen um, the people that were baptized, their names, if we could put those up there, uh, Kelly, Sue, and uh, Shane. So let's give them a round of applause. They were... Um, <clears throat> if you've never been baptized as a profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, we don't believe baptism saves. It's just an outward expression of an inward reality. I want to encourage you to uh, sign up and uh, we'll schedule a time for you to be baptized. There is a turtle that resides in the southeastern portion of Florida. It is known as a snapping turtle. And uh, it's a very pernicious creature that God created. The alligator snapping turtle is one that has an interesting way of catching its prey. What it does is it sits on the bottom of a, a lake or a creek or a river and it opens its mouth and a little pink-like tongue begins to wiggle itself. Now this tongue is obviously used as a form of deception to make a fish think that it's getting a meal when in fact it's going to become the meal itself. And so a fish sees this tongue and goes to get it and as a result ends up becoming a victim. This is the way that the alligator snapping turtle tempts its victims. You know, the Bible says that you and I are tempted on a regular basis. Even as Christians, we're never going to get to a point where we're not tempted in our Christian life. In fact, temptation is simply a solicitation to disobey God. And temptation comes in many different shapes and sizes. In fact, temptation implies that there is a standard. Even in the world, they understand what temptation is, that there is a right and there is a wrong, and a temptation is a solicitation to do what is wrong. Now, all temptations usually stem from one or three sources, not all of them, but most of them. 1 John chapter 2 talks about lust, materialism, and pride. Those are three sources by which all temptations flow. We could even add in their fear. Fear is another root cause for temptation. And the question that I want to ask and answer this morning is, how can you and I be victorious over temptation? Well, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1. We want to look at verses 13 through 18 as we're going through the book of James verse by verse. And we find ourselves in this section on dealing with temptation. Now, remember, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote to a group of Christians that were Jewish he calls them the diaspora in chapter 1. They were scattered because of persecution. And so James writes this epistle in order to encourage them in their faith. And so in chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, right away he deals with the subject of trials because they were going through affliction. Many of them were being persecuted. They weren't being paid their wages. They were suffering at the hands of the rich. And so in verses 2 through 12, he gives them a word of encouragement as they're dealing with trials. Now, in verses 13 through 18, he's going to shift his discussion, and he's going to talk about the subject of temptation. Now, what's the connection between verse 2 on trials and verse 13 on temptation? The Greek word for trials in verse 2 is parasmos, and the Greek word for temptation in verse 13 is the same Greek word parasmos. And so here's the connection. Trials often become temptations in our life. Whenever we go through a difficulty in our life, 
We are tempted to turn away from God. We are tempted to sin. I was reading this week about years ago, this guy went through a McDonald's drive-thru and he placed an order. And when he pulled away, he noticed in the bag that they did not put his food, but he had a bag of cash. Now, what would you do if you were given a bag of cash? Now, they accidentally must have grabbed it. Uh, it must have been the, the money from the night before. Who knows how it got in his hands, but it did. And he said, I needed the cash. And so he said, I was tempted. Now, getting that cash would be a test. But as soon as you see the cash, you internalize it and it becomes a temptation. What do I do? I could surely use this money. I could just drive off and maybe they'll never figure it out. Well, he wrestled with that. He parked his car, went in, and he turned in the cash. Well, they ended up giving him $200 and they gave him a month free of McDonald's food. See, temptations often become or are the result of the trials that you and I face. We deal with the trial, and as a result, it turns into a temptation. And so that's what the Jewish people were dealing with in James' time. They were being tested, and those tests were becoming temptations. Now, as we look at verses 13 through 18, we're going to learn four principles this morning on how to be victorious over temptation. The first principle is this. You and I are to expect to be tempted. We are to expect to be tempted. Notice, if you will, what he says in verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Notice he doesn't say if we are tempted, but rather he says when we are tempted. See, temptation is an inevitable part of life, whether you're a believer, especially if you are a non-believer. We're all going to be tempted in life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Notice temptation is common to all of us. We all are going to be tempted pretty much by the same things. However, we all have unique temptations. Even though we're all going to be tempted in a lot of the same ways, we all have those unique temptations that basically are adept to our personality, to our upbringing, and to the way God has wired us. We all have our Achilles heel. We all have our kryptonite that we struggle with that someone else may not struggle with. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, and I remember back 20-something years ago, he was dealing with this subject, and he says he remembers a student, it was a female, and she said her temptation was shoes. Now, there's nothing wrong with shoes. There's nothing sinful inherently about shoes, but she had a penchant or a bent towards buying too many shoes. It was her idol. I think she had over 100 pair of shoes. Now, I won't ask you ladies how many of you here have over 100 pair of shoes, but that was her Achilles heel. Now, you say, well, that's kind of weird. Well, listen, we all have areas that we struggle in that are unique. And even though all of us are going to be tempted on a regular basis, there are times in our life when we are more susceptible to temptation. One of those times in our life when we are more susceptible to temptation, there are a number of them. Let me share them with you. When you're in a position of power and prominence, you're going to be more subject to temptation. Or you experience an increase in material possessions. You may experience more temptation. 
or you have physical, emotional, or intellectual needs that are not being met. Here's a single person who has physical needs and emotional needs. They're lonely. They're going to be more tempted to compromise in that area of the physical life or the emotional life. They'll date a non-believer. I've seen this happen all the time where they lower their standard. They date a non-believer. Why? Because they have needs in their life. Also, there is the issue of if you're in an ungodly environment and you're surrounded by ungodly people on your job all the time, you're going to be more susceptible to temptation. Or when you experience major transitions in your life, death, divorce, a child moving, the loss of your possessions or your health, or maybe a big move, you're more subject to temptation. Or maybe listening too much to the praises of other people. You begin to listen to your press clippings more than you do God. Or maybe you're ignoring your weaknesses. When you ignore your weaknesses, you could be more subject to temptation. Or maybe when you're angry, when you're tired, when you're lonely, or when you're hungry. How many of you, when you're hungry, you get irritable and you'll snap at somebody like a junkyard dog when you haven't got proper food in your system? Or... When you're experiencing some type of a physical or emotional pain in your life, you are more subject to be tempted. I have a good friend of mine that I grew up with, went to high school with him in Miami. His dad is a pastor. He happens to attend the Calvary Chapel that I just came from, and tragically, his son took his life about a year and a half ago. It was a shock to the church. We were surprised, no one saw it coming, and it was devastating to the family and to his other children. And him and his wife have been going through a very difficult emotional time. And this past week, I texted him and I said, how are you doing? And he said, pray for me. He says, I'm being tempted. And I said, what are you being tempted with? He said, to drink. Now I know him, and he doesn't drink. He's not pulled by drinking. But he was away, he got away alone to just get his thoughts clear, and he was tempted to drink alcohol, and he said to me, he said, Mike, you texted me at just the right time. See, God prompted me to text him. Why was he more tempted to drink when he really doesn't struggle with that is because he's going through pain in his life. And so the first principle is this, all of us can expect to be tempted in our life. We need to embrace that. We need to prepare ourselves for that because what it does is it equips us to be on guard. Because if I know I'm going to be tempted and that I'm not above temptation, I'm going to be on guard when I deal with temptation in my life. There's a second principle that James gives us here in having victory over temptation, and that is this. Don't blame God for your temptation. Don't blame God for your temptation. He says in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, here it is, God is tempting me. Don't blame God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Don't be deceived, he says in verse 16, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all that he created. Now, the Jewish people here were tempted to blame God for the temptations they were dealing with because some of them were living at a subsistence level. 
Many of them were not being paid the wages that they should have been paid by the rich. We see that in chapter 5. And so if you're struggling to eke out a living, you could see where they would say, God, I wouldn't resort to stealing if you did not put me in this situation. And the indication here is we're not to blame God either directly for our temptations or indirectly. In fact, one person said that what's true in American history is the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And we still do that today. We pass the buck off to other people. We blame others for our temptations. And James is saying, don't blame God either directly or indirectly. We know what it means to blame God directly. God, why are you tempting me? He says, don't do that. God cannot tempt anybody. But I think where we all fall into a struggle is that we blame God indirectly. God, if you didn't give me these desires, I wouldn't engage in premarital sex. God, if you didn't allow me to be born with this physical malady, I wouldn't be as grouchy as I am. In fact, my former pastor in South Carolina, when he pastored in San Diego, he said he had a man in his church who was married and decided to up and leave his wife and divorce her. And so he confronted him and the guy said, look, God made me to be with multiple women. He did not intend me to be just married to one woman. And so what he was doing there was he was blaming God indirectly for giving him those sexual desires, and therefore that was his excuse to divorce his wife. James says, don't blame God for your temptations. Now, you may ask the question, well, if God does not tempt us and he's not the source, doesn't the Bible say that God tempts us? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Because it says in Matthew chapter 4, you've read this passage before, where Jesus was tempted by the devil. And notice the source of it. It says in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Spirit being God, it says, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this verse implies that God was the source of tempting Jesus. Well, the problem is the word temptation there does not mean temptation like a solicitation to do evil. It means to test the Bible makes it very clear that God will test us, either directly or he will allow us to be tested like with Job. But the Bible makes it very clear that God does not tempt us. God's goal is to test us that we would be approved, that we would pass the test. God tests us that we would grow, that we would mature. Satan, on the other hand, tempts us in order to destroy us. It would be like, for example, if I had one of my daughters and I'm teaching her how to swim, and finally after training her how to swim, I throw her in the water and I say, okay, I'm testing you. My goal as a father is that my daughter would swim to the other side, and obviously I wouldn't let her drown. That's my goal. That's my motive. I'm testing her. Satan, on the other hand, would take my daughter, throw her in the water, and he would say, drown. His goal is not that she would pass the test. Satan's goal is that she would drown and be destroyed. So God tests us, but he does not tempt us. The Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness to be tested, not to be tempted. Now, James gives us two reasons why God is not the source of temptation. Reason number one, God is holy. Notice what it says in verse 13 of God's holiness. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
Why can God not be tempted by evil? Because there's nothing in God that draws him towards evil. The Bible says that God is inherently holy. As wet is to water, holiness is to God. As hot is to fire, holiness is to God. God is not drawn by evil. Therefore, if he's not drawn to evil, why would God tempt me to do evil when the Bible says he calls me to be holy? Therefore, one of the reasons I can't blame God for temptation is that God is holy. It says in 1 John chapter 1 that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's a second reason why God cannot be blamed for our temptation. Not only is God holy, but the Bible says God is good. Notice what he says in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. See, we can be deceived thinking that God is the source of my temptation. And then notice God's goodness. He says in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Anything good in my life, God is ultimately the source of it. And notice it says, all the good gifts of God come down from the Father of the heavenly lights. In other words, God is the creator of all things. He's not only the Father, but he is the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is not like the heavenly bodies. They change. He doesn't change. He's always good. And one of the ways that God has been good to us as a father is he has caused us to be saved. He has caused us to be born again. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So another reason why he says God cannot be the source of temptation, not only is God holy, but the Bible says that he is a good God. He is our heavenly father who created all things. And one of the ways that God has been good to us is he chose to give us new birth. In other words, when you and I heard the gospel, we heard the word of truth and we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says you and I were born again. We became new creations. God recreated us. I remember in high school, I was sitting in my coach's office. I was in ninth grade and my coach was having a team meeting. And I said to my coach, as he was reading the Bible, I said, coach, I need to be saved. And he kind of was startled. Mike Nimmer needs to be saved. And I said, yeah, I need to be saved. And so he led me in the sinner's prayer right there in his office. And I got saved. You know why I got saved? Not because of my goodness, but because God opened my eyes and I saw the truth. And when I believed the truth, I was born again. And notice what he says here. He says that when you and I get saved, we're like a first fruits of all that he created. What does he mean by that? Well, first fruits is an Old Testament term. In the Old Testament, it was an agrarian society. They would plant their crops. And then what they do at harvest time is they would bring in first fruits. The first fruits was the first bumper crop. And basically what first fruits signified was that there were more crops to come. We talk about giving our first fruits. It means giving God right off the top. And what does he mean here when he says we're the first fruits of all that God created? This is a great thought. What he's saying is this. When God saved you, he recreated you, and he made you a new creation. You are the first fruits of what's to come later. What's to come later is this. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And so when God saved you and I, 
and he regenerated us. He made us new creations in Jesus Christ. That is a picture of what is to come. Just like God recreated us, he's going to recreate in the future a new heaven and a new earth. And so we are a preview. We are a living demonstration. We are a living example of what God is going to do in the future. We are the first fruits of God doing what Revelation 21 says. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And so listen, don't blame God for your temptations. Why? Because God is holy and God is good. And one of the ways he's manifested his goodness is he has saved us and we are a first fruits of what is to come. There's a third principle that James gives us here if you and I are going to be victorious over temptation, and that is this. We must recognize the true source of temptation. We must recognize the true source of temptation. In other words, where does temptation come from? If it doesn't come from God and we can't blame Him, what is the source of temptation? Well, James tells us in verse 14, he says, but each one, that is each individual, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed, here it is, circle it, by his own lust. And he's not talking here just about sexual lust. He's talking about sinful desires. And so James here says the true source of temptation that you and I need to recognize is it doesn't come from God. He's holy. He's good. Rather, it comes from your own sinful desires that stem from your sinful nature. Now, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their human nature became corrupted. And ever since then, they passed down that human nature to their progeny so that every one of us in this room we were born with a corrupted sinful nature. It's called the sin principle. It's called the flesh. It's called the old man. The Bible uses a lot of different terms to describe it, but it is that part of us that wants to act independent of God. It is that sin principle that pulls us away from God. We all have it. We all struggle with it. Now, the good news is the Bible says that that sin principle, that old man was crucified with Christ, and that means simply that its power has been rendered inoperative. It doesn't mean we're not going to battle the sin nature because, listen, the moment I get saved, the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of me, and I have this perennial battle that's going on. Galatians chapter 5 says the flesh and the Spirit war against one another. That's why we are temptable all the time. Because the new man wants to do what's right. The new man has holy aspirations. The new man wants to honor God. But I still have, Paul says in Romans 7, I have this sin principle within me. And he says, the things that I should do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. He said, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We all struggle with that sin nature. You know, when my girls were little... I remember when they were old enough to walk, I would grab their hand and I would walk with them. Maybe you've experienced this before. And they wanted to pull away. They wanted to be independent. And whenever I would let go of their hand, they would go off in another direction. And sometimes they would start running with their little feet and I would have to catch up behind them and grab them. 
And that's exactly what you and I want to do. We just naturally have a bent to stray away from God. James says, don't blame God for your temptations. He's holy. He's good. The source of your temptation is your sin nature. Now, again, the good news is we have the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to overcome those temptations. But you know what? There's two other sources of temptation that James doesn't mention here that are mentioned in other parts of the Bible. Another source of temptation is not only our sin nature, but Satan, the devil. He is called in Genesis chapter 3, the tempter. And by the way, none of us in this room has ever been tempted by Satan himself. Because the Bible says he's not omnipresent. So Satan doesn't mess with you and I because he's not omnipresent. Satan is dealing with a lot of world leaders and a lot of bigger fish to fry. But who tempts us are his minions, his demons. They are the ones who tempt us. Now, how do you know if it's your sin nature or if it's the devil? A lot of times we don't know. And it really doesn't matter because in the end, the Bible says to resist temptation, whether it's the sin nature or Satan. I was watching um, the movie Joan of Arc last week. If you've never seen the movie, it's a pretty good movie. Joan of Arc, as you know, she was a French woman. And at a very young age, as a teenager, she supposedly heard visions from God. And God wanted to restore France to a place of victory over the English. And so she felt like God was calling her to lead a battle against the English. And so she fought as she led in the Battle of Orleans, and she ended up winning the battle, and she was heralded as a success. Well, eventually, she was captured by the English. They threw her in jail. And then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church accused her of doing things that were unbiblical. One of them was she cut her hair, and you know she was not feminine enough, et cetera, et cetera. Well, eventually, she got burned at the stake. She's canonized today. But in the movie, while she was in jail, at the hands of the English, Satan was talking to her. Now, Satan was personified as an individual dressed in a black hood, and he was whispering to Joan of Arc, did God really call you to lead the French against the English? That wasn't God, was it? And you could see this battle that she's going through. She was convinced on the one hand that she was called of God. On the other hand, Satan was putting doubt in her mind and discouraging her. Just like John the Baptist, when he was imprisoned, remember, he struggled with doubt. He said, are you the one to come or should I look for someone else in Matthew chapter 11? See, the devil will tempt us. And listen, it's not just in the sexual area. How about materialism? We don't talk about this at the church, but materialism? How about discouragement? We all deal with discouragement. How about depression? How about doubt? There's a multitude of ways that Satan through his demonic spirits can often tempt us. Well, there's one final way, and that would be the system. You have the sin nature, you have Satan, and then you have the world system. The world system is not the globe itself, but it is the system of ideas, the morals of our age, the values of our age that seek to conform us against God. And it says in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and all of its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. 
In other words, the Bible says, do not love the world. That is the only love that God hates, is when you and I love the system. And listen, you and I know we live in a fallen world. It's getting darker and darker. And the world, according to Romans chapter 12, is seeking to squeeze us into its mold. You've heard of worldly Christians. We can all fall into the world having the same values of the world. And listen, it is constant. I was watching TV this week, and all of a sudden a commercial comes on, and it's a woman. She's a very attractive woman. Her name is Kim Kardashian. And she's laying on her side, and she's in her underwear and a bra, and she's advertising for this commercial. As soon as I saw it, bam, I had to turn the channel. Because I thought to myself, if I don't turn the channel, I'm going to struggle like a man with lust. Bam. You see, that's the world system. It comes at us from every angle. For you, it may not be lust. For you, it may be complaining and grumbling. Maybe you're negative all the time. We all have our areas where we struggle with our bents. And so James says this, if you're going to deal with temptation successfully, you got to know the source of temptation. He says it's not God. Don't blame God. God is holy. God is good. He says the source is your sin nature, also Satan, and also the system. When I know the source of temptation, I'm more effective at dealing with it. Well, there's one final principle that James gives us here if we're going to deal with temptation in our life, and that is this. We need to know the process of temptation. We need to know the process of temptation. There is a process that happens when you and I are tempted. Now, let me explain this. Some temptations happen gradually. Just like Eve in the garden, she dialogued with Satan. There was a process, and she finally bit. Other times, temptation happens so quickly, so instantaneously, you think there wasn't a process involved when really there was, but it happened so quickly. For example, you're driving on the expressway. Someone cuts you off, and they give you the middle finger. You've had this happen before. What are your thoughts? I've had some carnal thoughts. And so have you. If not, you're lying, and that's a sin. <laughs> See, that happens so quick. We've all had those situations. Somebody says something to us, and we snap at them like a junkyard dog. And we're like, where did that come from? See, the, it happened instantaneous. But there is a process that often happens, whether it's gradual or instantaneous. James says there's four steps to temptation. All temptations follow this process. First step, number one is desire. Desire. Notice what he says in verse 4. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. In other words, temptation starts initially with an urge, with a desire, with an impulse for something that we know violates the Word of God. So let me play this out in Scripture. Let's use David as an example. David was a king. He was in a position of power. I talked about you're more temptable when you're in those positions. David should have been out battling, but he was in his palace. And he was in his room, and then he turns around, and the window's open, and he notices a beautiful woman who is undressed and bathing. Immediately, desire was evoked within him. Who's that beautiful woman? Now, at that point, David could have said, 
no, this is wrong. I cannot do it. Even though I have a desire for it, I'm not doing that because it violates the will of God. David had that urge, and he did not suppress that urge. By the way, that's where you and I, if we're going to get victory over temptation, we have to deal with the desire, the urge, or the impulse. Nothing wrong with enjoying good food. Nothing wrong necessarily with having a second helping. But you and I know when we cross the line of gluttony, right? How many of you have been so full and you said, you know what, I'm still going to eat that dessert anyway? It's called Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> You know, the desire, you got to say no to that desire. That's where we get the victory. In fact, Ben Franklin, who wasn't a Christian, he gives a good quote here, and he says this. It's much easier to suppress a first desire than to satisfy those that follow, end quote. He's right. If you want to deal with temptation, you got to cut it off. you got to starve the desire. And that's the battle because a lot of times we want to flirt with the desire rather than flee the desire. And so we got to starve it. And a lot of times that's tough. And listen, you know where desires are generated? Through our senses. The eye gate, the ear gate. What I see, what I hear, what I touch, what I feel, what I smell, those things generate desires. And so sometimes I go avoid the look. See, because if I look, it can start the desires. It's kind of like I've been in these situations before where I said to myself, you know what, I want to get a new car. Nah, I'm not going to do it. But I'm just going to go to the dealership and I'm going to look at the car. This has happened to me. And I'm going to sit in the new car, and I'm going to smell it. You ever been there? You know, and listen, salesmen know they got you hooked. Because when you sit in that new car, you instinctively envision, man, I could be driving this thing, oh. And then you take it for a test drive, you smell it, and the next thing you know, you're signing the dotted line. See, they're not stupid. They know. Well, why don't you take it home for the night? Yeah, right. See ya. Desire. Second step, deception or rationalization. Notice what he says in verse 14 and 16. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away, circle that word dragged away, that's deception, and enticed. That's another word for deception. And then, of course, verse 16, he says to them very clearly, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, there's two words here that talk about how temptation is deceptive. It is the word dragged away and enticed. And both of those are used when it comes to animals or fish. For example, the word dragged away is a hunting term. It is a term of deception. You know when a hunter lays a trap with some food, he's deceiving the animal because the animal thinks it's going to get a meal when in the end it's going to get trapped. And that's the idea of temptation. Temptation is deceptive. I remember when growing up in Miami, I would work for my father. My father owned his own business and he would supply a lot of the cruise ships in Miami. And so he had a big business and I would go work for him each summer. I would take a buddy of mine and all summer in the heat of Miami, we would work unloading trailers. And I remember one time in the warehouse, we noticed this little mouse that would run out and then run away. And I said, I'm going to catch that sucker. And so what I did was I developed a box like on the screen and I took a makeshift stick with a string. We put cheese in the middle and we waited for that mouse to come out. As soon as the mouse came to get the cheese, we pulled the stick, bam, we caught the mouse. 
We got trapped. Deception. The mouse thought it was getting a meal. It got caught. That's exactly what temptation is. We have a desire, and then what happens, that desire, we get deceived. We rationalize what we want. Then he uses the word enticed. That's not a hunting term. The word enticed is a deceptive term because it refers to fishing, and the Greek word means to bait the hook. You know when you fish, you're putting on a fake lure and they think they're getting a meal. Sometimes it's a real worm. They think they're getting a meal, but in the end, they get caught. You know, Miami, where I grew up, it has a series of canal systems, and I lived literally five minutes from a canal. So my brother and I, Jeff, we would go to the canal and we would fish. We would take soft white bread, put it on the hook, and we would fish and we'd catch all kinds of brim. There's water moccasins in the, in the canal system. Well, one day there's a fish in the canal known as an Oscar. Now, an Oscar was a pretty type of fish. And I remember one day there was this big one sitting there and I thought, I want to catch this guy. So I took the hook with the little bread and I put it in front of the Oscar's face and I just dangled it. He was like poker face, wouldn't do anything. So I kept dangling it in front of him so he'd inch up a little bit more. Finally, he got so fed up after 15 minutes, he just went for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Bam, I caught him. See, deception. He thought he was getting a meal. And that's James' point here. He says it starts off with a desire, and then it leads to deception or rationalization. Listen, we all rationalize our sin. We're all guilty of this. Here are some common rationalizations. Ready? No one is perfect. I couldn't help myself. I deserve it. Do you know who I am? It's not fair, God. The devil made me do it. We all have weaknesses. I will not get caught. Everybody else is doing it. This will make me happy. God wants me happy, doesn't he? God made me this way. God will forgive me. There will be no consequences. I am an exception to the rule. Common rationalizations, we're all guilty of them. So James says, temptation happens with a process. It starts with a desire, then it leads to deception, enticed and carried away. There's a third step, disobedience. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. He's using a birthing analogy here, just like a baby grows in the womb. What happens is when we play with sin, it's like a baby maturing in the womb. Eventually, the mother gives birth. It's the same thing. When you and I don't deal with our desires, when we give into the deception, eventually we're going to give birth to sin. We call this disobedience. This is when we take the apple and we bite it. And by the way, sometimes disobedience happens deliberately. God, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. How many here have had that attitude? I have. Sometimes we disobey God out of weakness. Sometimes we don't want to disobey, but it's out of weakness. We react, but we disobey. I remember years ago, I went to go fish when I was in South Carolina. Me and a buddy of mine, and we were looking for some ponds, and we noticed this area that didn't have a house on it, but it was a pond by itself covered by woods, but it said private property stay off. 
Well, I had a desire to fish that pond because in my mind, here is the deception, the rationalization, that area is loaded with fish because no one goes there. And you know what? I won't get caught. No one will see me. So me and my buddy Max, I said, hey, Max, let's go to that little pond over there. And I knew in my heart it was wrong, but I was going to do it anyway. So it started with a desire. Then I, de I was deceived. And so I disobeyed and I went in the pond. About five minutes into it, I see a cop walking towards us. And I saw the headlines, pastor arrested for breaking private property and fishing. And you know what? I had to apologize, and he was gracious. And I had to say, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. Disobedience. Well, there's one final step, and that's death. Notice what he says in verse 15. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. What is he talking about there? Well, death in the Bible, there's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death. We don't know exactly what James is saying here, but some temptation, when you give into it, you know what happens? You can experience physical death. That has happened. Someone gets drunk, they get in their car, they drive, they get in a car accident, they die. There is physical death, but every time we sin against God and disobey, there is what? Spiritual death in the sense that my fellowship with God is broken. In fact, the word death means separation in the Bible, so my fellowship with God is broken. I don't lose my salvation, but my fellowship with God is broken. And so James says that every time we disobey God, and listen, some disobedience is more weightier than others. There's consequence. I think that's what he's saying. If not, my fellowship with God is broken. Sometimes there's physical consequences, financial consequences, emotional consequences, relational consequences. In other words, here's how Satan deceives us. We bite the apple thinking it's going to satisfy us. I got to have this. It's going to meet a need only to realize that there is a razor in the apple. Death. And by the way, you know what that could also mean? Strongholds. You know what a stronghold is? It is when something gets a hold of you and now you're addicted to it. So you have people in our country, and listen, they say 30% of pastors are embroiled in pornography. I'm not one of them. Thank the Lord. Pray for me, though. 30% or more pastors are addicted to pornography. Some people, it's food. They develop a stronghold in their life. Nothing wrong with food or enjoying food, but some people, it's a stronghold. For some of you, it could be whatever it is. A stronghold is something that starts off as a toehold, then it leads to a foothold, then it leads to a fortress, and now you're bound. You can't get out of it. See, that's part of the disobedience that leads to death. So what is James saying here? You need to understand that temptation has a process. It starts off with a desire, then it leads to deception or rationalization, then it goes to disobedience, and ultimately it goes to death. Now, do we think through these steps every time we're tempted? Absolutely not. It happens instantly. But listen, you got to know your weakness. You got to know where you struggle. Now, there's one final point we're not going to cover it this morning. I'm going to cover it next week. Rather than move forward in the text of the next section, I'm going to give you some strategies next week, next Sunday, on practical things you can do to help you overcome temptation. 
So come back next week. We're going to look at like 10 to 13 things really quick that you and I could do to help us overcome temptation. So what have we learned this morning from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 on how to be victorious over temptation? The first principle is what? Expect to be tempted. Don't think you're above it. You're going to be tempted. You better be on guard. The second principle is what? Don't blame God for your temptations. He's not the source, directly or indirectly. Why? Because God is holy and he's good. Third principle is understand the true source of temptation. Where does it come from? It comes from your sin nature, it comes from Satan, and it comes from the system. And then finally, understand that there is a process to temptation. There are steps that follow. Come back next week and we'll look at the practical steps of how to deal with temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us and encouraging us. Father, we all admit here that we struggle with temptation You warn us it's going to happen. And Father, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Even when we blow it time and time again, you forgive us. You are gracious. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're dealing with some temptations in your life that are very strong. They seem to be reoccurring. They don't seem to go away. Every two days, you're faced with it. My prayer is that you would continue to fight the good fight of the faith. And if you're sitting here and you've blown it and you feel shame, understand the Bible says that God is merciful, that he forgives, that he is gracious to us even when we blow it time and time again. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. I pray that you would strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And again, I want to remind us, be salt and light this week. One of the things that I'm having um, the church print are some ABC cards. ABC cards are little cards that explain the gospel. You'll see what they are. And on the back, it has our church information. It has our number, our website. What I'm going to do is give those out to you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you, when you're out to eat at a restaurant, to uh, say to the waiter or waitress, hey, we're about to say grace. How can I pray for you? And just offer a simple word of prayer, not with them there. They'll tell you their prayer request. Typically, I've seen this happen. And then give them a good tip and leave that card there. explains the gospel. It's a simple way for you to sow the seed. It's a practical way because we all go out to eat all the time. They're called ABC cards. So we'll get those to you probably within the next month. But I want to encourage you, be salt and light. Invite others to come. Father, we thank you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.